two Sundays ago, we took a look at God's creation of man, specifically how God created man, male and female, the establishment of these two gender roles. Then last Sunday, we took some time to discuss why God not only created man with gender distinctions, but the deeper significance behind the unification, reunification of the genders, where man and woman become one in this holy institution we call marriage. This morning, we're going to finish our time in Genesis 2 by looking at the world that God formed for Adam and Eve to enjoy as well as the parameters that God then established for how man could maximize the enjoyment of this incredible, awesome world. As you go through chapter two, you will notice that there are three things unique to this original world that God created specifically for Adam and Eve. And note, we're still, chapter two, in the sixth day of creation. These three things that you find woven through chapter two that are emphasized. Three things you'll find. First, a mist. Then you'll find a garden and a river. We're gonna look at all three of them first. We're told there was a mist. Verses five and six, if you look at it, of Genesis two. And we're gonna jump around, by the way. We're told that before God had planted of the field that was in the earth and before it, any herb of the field had grown, the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth. And there was no man to till the ground, but a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. Now, pause for a minute, because it would appear that in this pre-flood world, and the conditions, mind you, that had already existed, already had been established leading into the third day, there were certain ecological systems that existed then in God's original created order that don't, that don't exist the same way today. This mist seems to be one of them. Instead of vegetated life being watered from rain that fell from the sky, we're told that God watered via a mist that went up from the earth. And Genesis chapter 7, verse 11, we'll read concerning Noah's flood, that the earth was covered in water from fountains, quote, of the great deep that were broken up, in addition to the windows of heaven opening up. Most scholars believe that in this pre-Diluvian world, there existed under the surface of the earth a pressurized water system that released a mist through some type of geyser-like mechanism across the face of the earth. That's about all we know. We see geysers today, but not in the sense that it's the sole mechanism for watering vegetated life. So we see a mist. Secondly, there was a garden. A garden. While God created vegetated life on the third day, after forming man, from the dust of the earth, according to chapter two, God then does something unique. Look at verses eight and 10. We're told the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four riverheads. Concerning this garden, we're going to look at this in, in kind of two sections. First, we'll look at the how and what before getting into the where and why. Our passage is clear. You note, God planted a garden. What makes this verse so fascinating is that while God in the creation narrative has done a lot of firsts. This is also a first. If you note, God spoke all things into existence, right? And then he did something unique with man. He formed man from the dust of the earth. That was, that was unique. Spoke everything into existence, formed man. Then God took from Adam's side, right? And he made the woman totally unique. 
to build, to establish. Here, this idea of God planting, also completely unique. This word planted establishes the idea of God intentionally going throughout all of created vegetated life, picking and choosing certain trees, certain vegetation that he was going to put specifically into a garden for Adam and Eve. He didn't put everything he had made. He picked and he chose what man would really enjoy. For any of you gardeners, master growers, you know that there should be some design uh, to your landscaping. Uh, we bought a house where the lady had absolutely no design. She just planted whatever she wanted to plant wherever she wanted to plant it. And the idea of pruning was a foreign concept. So we buy the house and we're walking through the back. I had things growing this spring I didn't know even existed. Like it was an unbelievable dynamic. And so if you're a gardener, you know that it's not just picking and choosing plants, but it's a compilation that there's an artistry to it. There's a design, smells and colors, heights and growing patterns. God planted a garden unique to all of the earth. And, and if that wasn't special enough, this word garden, is equally enchanting. The word literally means an enclosed garden. And within Hebrew poetic literature, this word garden is used to speak of the innocence and chastity of a virgin bride. This word garden in the Hebrew, you'll find six different times used in the Song of Solomon. Here's a provocative example that I think will illustrate my point. In Song of Solomon 4, verse 16, the Shulamite, the bride of the beloved, she says to her husband on their wedding night, Awake, O north wind, and come, O south. Blow upon my garden, that its spices may flow out. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its pleasant fruits. And yet, she's talking about what you think she's talking about. That's not you just being a pervert. Like literally, that's the intention behind the poetic language of this wedding night between the Shulamite and her beloved. My point is that it's the same word being used in, in a provocative passage like that, that we find here in Genesis 2, that God planted a garden. It's not just that the garden was uniquely planted by God himself, while that would have made it unique enough. But it's in using this word that we learn that it's, it's the very nature of this garden, that it's protected, that it's a cherished place. It spoke of a beautiful innocence, that there was something pure about the garden, that there was something intimate about God's design. Now, the where and the why, also significant. Notice that God planted a garden eastward in Eden so that he could put the man whom he had formed. The where and the why. Note, it's likely Eden was a larger geographic area with this garden being located somewhere in the east. We're told that God planted a garden eastward in Eden. So Eden's this larger geographic area. Eastward is where the garden, thus the garden of Eden. It's not that Eden was this all-encompassing garden. Where any of this was, by the way, no clue. God flooded the earth and destroyed everything. So why speculate? Now within this special garden, we're told that God planted for man all kinds of trees. And we're told that these trees were chosen with two specific criteria, right? So this garden is planted for man. God picks and chooses of all vegetated life, these trees with two criteria in mind. And this is significant. Look at verse nine. We're told that out of the ground, the Lord God made every tree grow. That is one, first criteria. These trees to be in this garden had to be pleasant to the sight. They had to be stunning. Secondly, they had to be good for food. We're also told that the tree of life, 
clearly fitting the criteria was in the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What I love about this word Eden is that the word in the Hebrew literally means pleasure. God specifically planted a perfect garden for man, uniquely filled with trees that were not only designed to be visually stimulating and captivating, majestic, but that these trees would yield fruit that would be satisfying, pleasurable. Note this phrase, good for food. It doesn't mean that, that the fruit was adequate. McDonald's is adequate. The I, sometimes adequate. <laughs> the idea is that it was excellent. That it wasn't like, yeah, that was good. It was like, oh. I need another one. You know what I mean? You ever, have you ever ate, eaten something and you're like, oh, I could keep eating this and die. Like I could, I could very quickly look like Jabba the Hutt if I am not extremely careful with this banana pudding. You know what I mean? Like I like to think that, that in the garden, the fruit, that it was like cups of banana pudding, you know, that there was the fruit already fastened into glorious pudding. Consider that in the place of pleasure, and this is important, Eden, the place of pleasure that God planted or specifically picked out trees that would not only stimulate man, but would physically satisfy him as well. And if that weren't enough, what did, what did God later do? He's like, man, this is awesome. Man's gonna love these trees and this fruit, but you know what? For him to really get the most out of it, he needs someone to enjoy it with. So he took man and he split man into man and woman and said, you guys, you're naked, run around, eat fruit, and be pleased. What happened, right? This garden, incredible. So, this, so there's a mist, a garden, this world. But, but we're also told that there was a river. Do you notice that? After making man and the garden of Eden for his enjoyment, in Genesis 2 verse 10, we're told that God created, and we won't read the whole passage, I'll just kind of summarize it, but he created a single river that would flow out of Eden, this place of pleasure, whose specific job it was to water the garden, this intimate enclosure where man would be pleased and satisfied, before then from the garden, splitting this singular river into four river heads that would cover the earth. Now what's interesting about this is that while the result of the mist and this river were the same, the distinction lies in what these two were designed by God to water. This mist, we're told, watered the whole face of the ground while the river watered the garden. Now, we know that humanity, you and I, we need two things for life, for life to exist. You need food and you need water. As it pertains to food, in Genesis 1, verse 29, God said, see, I've given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed to you, it shall be for food. So God had already taken care of the food category, the food department. But what about water? While this mist watered their food, we're already given that context, right? It rose up from the earth to water vegetated life. It's interesting that the specific job of this river was not to water the vegetated life of the garden, that doesn't seem to be the implication here, but instead, why would the river go to the garden? If the vegetated life and the trees received water from the mist, what does the river's purpose fulfill by going to Eden? To provide water for Adam and Eve, for humanity. 
Adam and Eve here are placed in this environment whereby God not only satisfied their food through the mist, but one where a river existed that perpetually flowed so that they would never, ever, ever thirst. As God created man spiritual and then determined that his spiritual needs be satisfied in a relationship with himself. And as God created man relational, and then determined that his relational satisfaction be found in his wife and her husband, God, and note, he created human beings with an incredible capacity for physical pleasure. And then determined that the rest of creation exists to satisfy that need. So he creates man spiritual. He himself would satisfy that spiritual need. Creates man relational. That's not going to be satisfied in the earth. He gives him a partner for that purpose. But God made us pleasure seekers. He wired us with capacities to be pleased, to be satisfied for pleasure. And then he gave us everything so that we could find pleasure. All of creation, and we've, we've mentioned this before, all of creation was man-centric. Everything was created for man to be in dominion over and therefore satisfied by, which is why at the end of the sixth day, we're told in Genesis 1 verse 28 that God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over every living thing that moves on the earth. This phrase fill the earth and subdue it, God's directive, it means literally in the Hebrew to take the earth into your hands and enjoy it. Be satisfied by it. Once again, this is why after every day of creation, God evaluating what he had made declared these three words, it is good. God evaluated every aspect of his creation, not in the context of how awesome it was, but in the context, the evaluation of how man would enjoy what he made. He hung stars in the sky. He says, it's good. Why? Not that the stars are good, but man would love looking at those stars. He puts the sun in the sky. Why does he say it's good? Because man would enjoy its warmth and the moonlight for the night, and vegetation, and plants, and fish, and birds. He created all of these things, said it was good, not that it was good, but that man, God said, they're going to love what I just made. Everything was man-centric, which, which then explains why after making man male and female, and giving them this garden full of things he knew would satisfy with a continual river so that man would never thirst. In Genesis 1, verse 31, God saw everything he had made. And indeed, he says, it wasn't just good. It was very good. Man is going to really, really, really love this garden and this relationship and these things that I've made. I hope you understand how this speaks of God's incredible grace. It's our purpose in this series, looking at Genesis as a book of grace, the genesis of grace, how grace develops here in Genesis. Before the law is ever introduced, God established his grace as the basis of how he wanted to relate to man. God's grace. Not only does this imply and mean that God created everything with your enjoyment in mind? But what this tells us is that in God's original design, the fruit of the earth and this river of water that flowed out of her, out of Eden, intended, was designed, was formed, was created, was instituted. Why? To satisfy your physical needs. In God's original created order. He gave man this world to be satisfied by. And you know what? Man was satisfied by it. Adam and Eve were perfect and they lacked nothing. In this garden, 
There was no discontentment, no jealousies, no craving, just a continual state of satisfaction in all of the things that God had made. It is a foreign idea to us. It's why the chapter ends in Genesis 2.25, telling us that Adam and Eve were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. This word naked, it literally means they were laid bare. The phrase not ashamed, it means that they felt no shame, or better stated, that they felt no disappointment. They were completely one and totally satisfied by the world that God had given them. And yet, tragically following the rebellion of man against God, what happened? God allowed the earth, designed to satisfy, to rebel against man. Unlike the conditions that he enjoyed in this garden, not only were Adam and Eve immediately aware of their nakedness, but the fruit of the earth would no longer satisfy because the earth now resisted the very man it was created to please. Things following the fall were no longer ever evaluated as being good. The fruit of the earth would spoil. The fruit of the earth would frustrate man. Why? For this river that flowed out of Eden was no longer able to do what it was designed to do to quench man's inner thirst. And because man is now thirsty, nothing can satisfy. Today, because man stands against God, God no longer allows creation to satisfy. The fruit of this earth will spoil. It will frustrate man. It will frustrate you. The pursuits of this life will come up as empty. The world will promise something it can never produce. It's as the extremely hedonistic front man of the Rolling Stones, Mick Jagger, famously sang, I can't get no satisfaction. I try, I try, I try. You get the tune. But I can't get no satisfaction. It's, he's correct. Understand, there's a river that flows into Eden because man's thirst is quenched, Eden satisfies. Satisfies because the river no longer quenches a thirst, the earth can't satisfy. And yet, this will not always be the dynamic. Like right from Genesis 2, like we're given this, this picture, this precedent, for the Bible will still speak of two future rivers created by God that will bring life back to the earth. First at the end, the Battle of Armageddon. Zechariah the prophet wrote in chapter 14, he said this, let me read it for you. And the day Jesus' feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. He continues to say that in that day, it shall be that living water, waters, shall flow from Jerusalem half of them towards the eastern sea, half of them towards the western sea. The prophet Ezekiel, he adds concerning this very river in chapter 47, that it shall be that every living thing that moves, wherever the rivers go, will live. Everything will live where the river goes. Along the banks of the river will grow all kinds of trees used for fruit. Their leaves will not wither. Their fruit will not fail. They will bear fruit every month because their water flows from the sanctuary, the place where God is. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for medicine. There's a second river, still prophetic, that we find in the New Jerusalem after heaven and earth have passed away. In Revelation 22, verses 1 through 3, John says that he showed me a pure river of water, of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And the middle of its street and on either side of the river was, and note, the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there shall be no more curse. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. Two yet future rivers 
restoring what the curse brought forth that robbed us of Eden. And yet, while we have two future rivers, rivers of restoration of God's created order today, today, if you want the fruit of this earth to satisfy, if you want to find fulfillment in your life, in your work, in your relationships, understand the only way that those things can happen, that satisfaction can come, that fulfillment can be achieved, that there's purpose, it's for these things to flow from a river. They must be watered from a river. Water provided only in Jesus. In John chapter 7, Jesus cried out. Place it in context. He says, if anyone thirsts, <laughs> and don't we thirst? He says, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scriptures have says, out of his heart, what? Shall flow rivers of living water. You know, there, there, there are two passages that, that shed further light on how this exactly works. Two passages I think, I think fit really nicely in Genesis 2. Psalms 1, we're told, Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And the, Check it out. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bring forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Jeremiah, the 17th chapter, he reiterates this idea by saying, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose hope is in the Lord. For he shall be a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its roots by the river and will not fear when heat comes, but its leaf will be green and will be anxious, will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. What's interesting and fascinating, and why I think these passages tie neatly into Genesis 2, is this word planted. Now, don't misunderstand. The word planted here in these two passages in the Hebrew is actually different from the one, the word found, that God planted in Genesis 2. While, God, while the word that God planted, it spoke of an original act. The Hebrew word planted we find in Psalms and Jeremiah the word shatal, it means to plant through transplanting. Well, it's a truth that since man's sin, the earth possesses no river that will quench your thirst or yield satisfying fruit. Our thirst can be quenched and our lives can be satisfied if we'll but transplant ourselves, root ourselves next to the banks of not an earthly river, but a heavenly one, the word of God. It's how we learn of Jesus. It's how we grow closer to Jesus. It's how we believe in Jesus. As Jesus told the woman in the well in John 4, whoever drinks of this water, pointing to this bucket of water, this well, he says, you drink of it, you'll thirst again. It doesn't quench anything. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst again. The water that I shall give will be in him a fountain of water springing up, bubbling forth to everlasting life. Understand, the only way that we can return to this position whereby God declares it is good was for Jesus to hang on the cross and declare once and for all, it is finished. We never forget, from Jesus' death on the cross, when they stuck that spear into his side, outflowed a blood, that's true, that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. But what also flowed? A river of living water that not only serves to quench our inner thirst, but yields in and through our lives lasting fruit. The only way you can have lasting fruit is for these things to be yielded 
from a water that flows from Jesus. Friend, until your thirst is satisfied in Christ Jesus, your earthly work, I promise you, it will prove frustrating. It will prove fruitless. Unless your life flows forth from Jesus, the world will provide nothing that it promises. It will only yield what's rotten and bitter. By God's very created order, this earth can only satisfy if it's being watered first from an eternal source whose continuous flow quenches our deepest thirst. A mist, a garden, but a river. As we mentioned last Sunday, within the creation narrative, God does more than simply speak order out of chaos. He does more than that. Over and over and over again, in his word, through his word, God sets the parameters for how created order was to operate. It's not just that he organizes. He sets parameters for how order is to be maintained. God created all things, but he then specifically weighed in. He determined how the things he created were to function and interact in the natural world for there to be order. God not only made man, male and female, before determining that this ultimate joining together of the genders occur in marriage. But following the formation of this world, designed to satisfy man, God also established how man could maximize the enjoyment of this particular world by explaining to man what he could do to ruin it. Just reiterate it. God created the earth for you to be satisfied by. There's not a river anymore, but there's one in Jesus. And from that river flowing into our lives, this world can satisfy. You can enjoy it. It can please. And yet, God sets some parameters for how all that's to occur. Look at verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, God says, You shall surely die. Notice that God, God, made this garden, had a river flow into it, and he put Adam in the Garden of Eden. Why? Not just to be satisfied by it, but we're told to tend and keep it. Right from the beginning, God established within man, before the fall, before sin, before any of those things, a divine purpose. Adam, it's good, man. It's very good. You're going to love it all. Here's the garden. Here's Eve. Whoa, man. Run around, have fun. This garden I want you to take care of it. Tend, keep it. In the Hebrew, to tend is the word abad, meaning to work, to serve. The, the phrase to keep it or shamar means to guard, to work it, to guard it. Now some see this as a charge for Adam to care and keep the garden that God had given for him to enjoy. And it's very likely those two words can be applied such. And yet their meaning lends to a deeper significance and therefore implication for you and I. Throughout the Old Testament, we find this word, tend, abad, used to describe not just any work, but a service to God. When God originally appeared to Moses at the burning bush, he told him in Exodus 3, verse 12, I will certainly be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve, same word, God on this mountain. Then in warning the people later on as to the pitfalls of idolatry, God said in Exodus 23, you shall make no covenant with them, nor with their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. 
For if you serve, same word, their gods, idolatry, it will surely be a snare to you. What's interesting, and why I bring this up, is that this word abad, serve, work, it's tied most of the time in Old Testament literature to our worship. I hope you note that our ultimate worship to God, your ultimate worship to God, doesn't come or doesn't occur when you arrive to church and sing songs. Like, that is a form of worship, and that's good. That's a benefit. But your greatest demonstration of worship is not singing songs. Instead, it's placing God as the most important one in your life so that everything else you do flows from it. So that your life is lived as an offering to God. Everything. You want to worship God? Live consistent with God being on the throne. That's worship. That's exalting his name. It stands to reason that this observation, that Adam was placed in this garden to work, that that idea had way more implications than just his role in the garden. That God says, tend and keep it, not just because the garden, you know, needed a little TLC, but that there was something bigger at play. And I think it's this, that Adam's work was to flow from his relationship with God. Like in the garden, work, like Adam was not working, tending the garden, pruning, hedging, replanting, cultivating. He's not doing any of that out of some inner sense of like, man, I really want God to be pleased with me. I really want God to find favor. Like he's not trying to earn favor. He's not trying to maintain favor. His work was not motivated by favor. It was motivated as a response to favor. Instead, Adam's work in caring for the the garden was designed to be a natural response of all of God's work. His service was to be worship. And in this environment, in no way could you ever have said that Adam's work was labor. Like that Adam's like, man, I hate waking up in the morning. Like I hate doing this, but I got to because I don't want God to be ticked off, right? Like it's an entirely different motivation, not of law, but, but where? Of grace. Adam's work was natural. It wasn't something that God had commanded him to do. Did you notice that in our text? That God created the garden and he put man in it to tend and keep it. Then we're told God commanded The work, the tending, was not a command. Why? Because there didn't need to be one. It was natural. It was a byproduct. God had created all these things, had placed him in the middle of it. And Adam's like, yeah, man, I get to tend it. I get to keep it. There's no directive here. He was there to do these things. They flowed from his life. Additionally, look, shamar, keep it. It has a deeper Old Testament meaning as well. In Exodus 19, God promised Israel that, quote, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep, same word, my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. Think about it. Like, what was it that Adam was to keep? Like, what exactly was he supposed to be guarding? Like, was he guarding the garden from invading, conquering armies? Like, like no. Like, everything's perfect. Like, what exactly is he keeping? Like, I I hope you know that that within context, what Adam was to keep was the all-important position of God in his life. Like, in his work, and while in a garden given to him to enjoy, God knew that it was critically important above and beyond everything else that Adam safeguard allowing either of these two things, his pleasure or his work, to become more important, to become his pursuit as opposed to God. In a sense, Adam here 
work flow from grace. Keep. It's just about keeping things in proper order. Now, not to get ahead of ourselves, but spoiler alert, Adam totally messes up. Happens in the next chapter. I know, sorry. Should have put a disclaimer. And yet, because Adam failed to do this, like he failed to safeguard, right? Consider that while his work may have been enjoyable because it flowed from his relationship with God as worship, that in a sense, the water flowed downhill. Following his rebellion, two things immediately happened to his work, right? First, his work, motivated by grace, a natural response, it becomes labor. It's no longer natural. It's no longer enjoyable. It's something he has to do. He doesn't get to do it. He has to do it. He's commanded to do it. So in addition to his work being ruined, what also happens? I think it's fascinating. His work then becomes the basis of of his unrighteousness, of how far he had fallen. And it's for this reason that God does another first in Genesis. We're told that God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Understand, not only does God make no similar directive to any other aspect of created order, He didn't command that to anything else. He told the fish and the birds and the land animals, Be fruitful. But this word command, it's unique. This sole command given to man, I hope you know it's not outlandish. And it actually is not all that crazy. Do you realize that this one command here in Genesis 2 is consistent with, first off, the greatest commandment of the law, Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, that's then later affirmed by Jesus himself as being the greatest command in Matthew chapter 22. And what command is that? that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. It's the greatest commandment, and it's consistent here in Genesis 2. It's critical to your understanding of what's happening here and what will happen next, that you realize a simple concept. In order for a love relationship with God to exist, it was critically necessary that mankind be given a choice. Like people try to point out, right? God and his foreknowledge and his sovereignty made man. Why'd he put the tree there, huh? Especially if you knew we'd eat of it. Isn't all this stuff on him? No, not exactly. Like that's a failure to understand what relationship and more specifically love necessitates. Like please realize real love demands at its core the freedom to not love. The the, the way you know your wife loves you is with the knowledge that she could easily run. (laughs) Right? It's the fact she has a choice. You know, you act like an idiot you're laying there in bed and you're looking over and you're like, I don't deserve this. I'm a moron. But I know she loves me because she's still here. Because she would have the freedom to leave. Like real love demands at its core the freedom to not love. Like if man lacked the freedom, like if, if somehow in Adam and Eve, They lacked the freedom to really choose. Or for that matter, the option, like if God had just determined it, then not only would humanity be incapable of demonstrating love because we would be robotic. Like no matter what would happen, we're just now programmed to love. God's like, ba-pow. And you're like, I love you, God. Like I can't make any decisions. But then what happens later is totally the work of an unloving God. Like if God is love and I don't have a choice, then what happens when man takes the fruit, that is on God. Because he didn't give me a choice. 
that's a God I don't want anything to do with. But the one that gives me freedom, even when it's messy, I respect that. Like, no, without a choice, humanity may have remained innocent, right? There's no tree. They may have remained innocent, but man could never be righteous before God without a choice. And also note, please understand this. It's not as though God forced himself onto humanity. Like that God created, put man in a garden, and was like, now you're stuck with me. No. Like God didn't force himself on humanity, onto mankind, nor did he even require that love originate within man, right? Like in his love for man, God created an avenue for man to make a decision to love him or to make a decision to choose to not love him, to reject his love. But in both dynamics, understand Adam's love for God was designed to be reciprocal. That God's, that, that love, man's love was not meant to originate in man. He's like, I've given you a garden. I've created you a free moral being. I've given you a choice. And now, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to so abundantly above shower you with my grace, shower you with my love so that you'll love me back. That it will just be a natural response. It's not as though that our decision was a response to some frailty within God or some fault within God's love. It's always been this way. 1 John 4, 19. We love him, why? Because he first loved us. Well, it's true that Adam's life, that Adam's life was suspended upon a strict obedience to this one simple command. That this one command was the basic link which allowed man to connect with his creator in a love relationship. I think it's also important to point out that God's command to Adam it was not restrictive in nature. Like that's the other accusation, right? Like God's clear to Adam right from the beginning, right? Of every tree, you may freely have at it, right? Like he emphasizes freedom first. See all them trees? Man, they're yours. Rock and roll. There was just one tree that God determined was off limits. And why? Well, God's clear. In the day you eat of it, you'll die. That's why I'm telling you, don't eat of it. Like, like do, you, do you get it? All those trees, man, rock. Have fun. Enjoy. That one, don't. I'm just telling you, don't. Because you're going to die. It's like telling, it's like, it's, kids, have fun. Have a blast. That one thing, yeah, it'll kill you. You're restrictive. No, I just love you and that will kill you. So I'm just telling you, like, avoid that. Like God's command, and this is important, was not to restrict man's enjoyment of the world that he had been given, but was instead focused on preserving man's enjoyment of that world. It's hard to enjoy a lot when you're dead. The one command is just to keep you alive. God knew that in eating the forbidden fruit and thereby acting in rebellion to his creator, that there would be a terrible result for man. Instead of a relationship with God, man would find himself isolated with God. Instead of a relationship with one another that was based in, in, in a satisfying sense, that we would be able to enjoy community, man would live in conflict. The world would not satisfy, it would only frustrate. Instead of lasting pleasure, God knew if you eat of that fruit, this life is gonna be filled with nothing but continual pain. Instead of work flowing out of our relationship with God as worship, at best, it would then be labor. At worst, it would be warped in some twisted religious mechanism by which we would attempt to work our way back into God's favor. Instead of life, God knew if we ate of that fruit, our rebellion would only bring death. Like, I hope you know that God has better plans for your life 
None of these things were part of his original creation. God wants you to live it up, to have fun, to enjoy the world. He wants to love you and by his grace, provide you a life of satisfaction. God is not a divine killjoy. God is not out to rob you of your fun. He's wanting to set some parameters so that you can get the most out of the life he created you for and then died to redeem you for. God is not holding out on you. He's wanting to liberate you, to set you free. The world lies, says that Jesus, rip off. He just doesn't want you to have any fun. And Jesus is like, what that fun is, it turns to sour. It's rotten. It's bitter. Come to me and I will give you life and that more abundantly. And yet God's grace, it does demand one thing. The very thing that the garden, man's existence in the garden demanded. One thing, a relationship with Jesus that you choose to enter into. If you want to have life, come to Jesus. That love doesn't originate here, but it originates on the cross when Jesus did so much for you. Life flows from that. Satisfaction flows from that. This world in your life flows from that. It will have purpose. It will have meaning. It will have joy. I want to close this morning with a quote from an old pastor that I've quoted a lot already, but he's just so good. And what he has to say here sets the stage for next Sunday, C.H. McIntosh. He wrote in his commentary on Genesis, I would here suggest to my reader the remarkable contrast between the testimony set up in Eden and that which is set up now. Then, when all around was life, God. God spoke of death. Now, on the contrary, when all around is death, God speaks of life. Then the world was, and the day thou eats, thou shalt die. Now the word is, believe and live. And as in Eden, the enemy would seek to make void God's testimony as to the result of eating the fruit. So now he seeks to make void God's testimony as to the result of believing the gospel. God has said, and the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. But the serpent said, ye shall not surely die. And now, when God's word plainly declares that he who believeth on the Son shall have everlasting life, that same serpent seeks to persuade people that they not have everlasting life. Not should they presume to think of such a thing until they have first felt, done, and experienced all manner of things. Don't believe the lie. For as we'll see next Sunday, there are terrible results.